Thank you to Foundation Devices for being a sponsor of this podcast. When it comes to beautiful, air-gapped, open-source Bitcoin hardware wallets, this is a fantastic team to check out. Foundation Devices. Because I've come to realize it's not just about the hardware. The hardware can look great. It can be open source, it can be secure, but you also have to know the ethos of the team behind it because they're the ones who are going to offer you firmware upgrades. They're the ones who can change the functionality of your device. You can have a hardware wallet that does exactly what you need, but if the team starts to develop in a direction you don't like, like some would say Trezor and Ledger have started to do over the past year or two, it's not easy to make a change. You know, but the team at Foundation They'll tell you right to your face. They're focused on more than just your Bitcoin. They're focused on your sovereignty and your freedom. And that's why I support them. And I appreciate them supporting me with this podcast. You can check out Foundation and their Passport Bitcoin wallet at foundationdevices.com. On this episode, I speak with Gabriel Shapiro, who's the general counsel of Delphi Labs. And he's a member of the LexPunk Army, which is a really cool open source legal resource for DAOs and other crypto projects. Uh, We get into a lot of different topics around crypto ethics, regulations. It gets spicy as usual. Let's get right to it. Mr. Gabriel Shapiro, lawyer extraordinaire, crypto lawyer extraordinaire. Good Do I need you. that qualifier? I mean, you are a lawyer. You're a real lawyer. I, I am a real lawyer. Uh, before I did crypto law stuff, I was actually one of the top mergers and acquisitions, uh, younger mergers and acquisitions uh, attorneys in the United States. So yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to think that the qualifier isn't necessary, uh, but I do pretty much do exclusively crypto law stuff these days. You know, something I think about a lot when we're having chats is like how you define your approach to this stuff, because... Like my approach is kind of <clears throat> looking at worst case scenarios and trying to think through how how the legal system or the government could eventually turn around and abuse this to to ruin our lives, you know. Um, right. I call it adversarial thinking. Other people call it nonsense, but or or, or tinfoil hat, uh, whatever. But like, how do you, as an attorney in the space, how do you? approach this stuff versus the way that I do? Well, I think that perspective is definitely part of the one part of the perspective I bring to bear. And a really big influence on me getting into this stuff was the show Mr. Robot. Uh, Hmm. When I was working on M&A deals, I would constantly have Mr. Robot playing in the background. And um, yeah, just kind of, you know, I, I just kind of got more and more hyped on that. And the one of the famous scenes from that show is where uh the the CEO of Evil Corp uh, has a meeting with uh, I, I believe it's the the Treasury Secretary in the show um, the U.S. Treasury Secretary and he basically says, look, uh, Evil Corp has its own new cryptocurrency Ecoin, and uh, you need to support this and basically make this almost like the official cryptocurrency of the United States, kind of like what we now call a CBDC, which, which, which there wasn't really a term for back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and in exchange for this, I'm going to give you all kinds of backdoors into the coin and tracking surveillance powers and freezing powers, etc. And you need to do this. Uh, otherwise, China will beat us with Bitcoin, right? 
Um, mm. And I think that that was a very, very prescient scene quite some time ago uh, uh, where, you know, the, the, the potential for this tech to be used for evil uh, in with through sort of like public-private partnerships, um, you know, was acknowledged. And so I take that pretty seriously. I think, though, uh, the other thing I would say, though, about my approach that may be a little different from yours is I think your approach is very sort of user-facing, right? Because you are a user mm-hmm. uh, and probably most of your audience is users. And my, I, I am paid to represent the interests uh, almost exclusively of developers in the space. I don't really represent VCs. I don't really represent centralized exchanges. Um, I basically just almost exclusively represent uh, DeFi developers. And so uh, I also, you know, probably my predominant interest in my actual work is protecting them. And sometimes uh, those two, those two constituencies, users and developers can be at odds or can be somewhat zero-sum, right? There mm-hmm. there might be certain ways of configuring things that are better for the legal protection of developers uh, or the asset protection of developers and, and that are worse for users. Um, and so, you know, I, I try to keep user interests in mind, but if I'm being paid, you know, for legal advice by a client, then obviously the client has to come first and most of those clients are devs. Yeah. Yeah, you hit on something really important there that, that- – drives me crazy like the the transparency um of lawyers in the space is is lacking when it comes to incentives and like you just hit the nail on the head with regard to the fact that lawyers almost all the lawyers in this space are getting paid by either a a developer community or a company or a vc or somebody who's not a retail user Right, somebody who wants to profit off of a retail user. So, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's like, um, there's there's obviously situations where like A16Z's uh, incentives in this space are going to come into conflict with mine <laughs> or, or another user because if they didn't, then they wouldn't be making any money. But they're actually funding huge swaths of the the lawyers that are out there, the lawyers, the lobbyists, the whoever else they're sending to Washington, D.C. to to work with Congress. Right. And regulators to develop laws. Um, And that's been a big beef of mine is that. Tell me what you think, but but it seems like almost all the people who are in D.C. uh, pushing for for regulation and for laws and saying they're fighting on behalf of users um, are absolutely compromised by the money that they're making from the people who want to profit off of us. And in turn, they're passing that compromise along to the lawmakers. And the laws that are being pumped out are not there to protect our privacy or our liberty. They're there to ensure that there's a, a an industry that these massive VCs can play in for the next 50 years and not worry about somebody else coming in and um, innovating away from that industry. It seems like they just want to protect themselves at this point. Am I way off track or am I close? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that that's a risk and that's uh, certainly a very large part of their motivations. I mean, every human being 
has, I think, kind of like mixed motivations for most of the things that they do, you know, and a guy like probably Mark Andreessen, who's like sitting at the top of, of A16Z, you know, he, he's already rich. And, you know, you, you could, whether you agree with his politics or not, you could tell that a lot of his motivation is probably at this point more in, in shaping the world in a certain way, you know, and that he does kind of believe in open software in a sense, but he doesn't make all the decisions, right? You know, he has probably a, a large pyramid under him, um, you know, of, of people who think about things different ways, have different incentives. And, and overall, you know, their job is to manage other people's money and their duties are to manage other people's money and to make them a profit. Um, and, and that definitely, you know, that, that has to shape things, right? And it has mm-hmm. to shape things. I think you're right, somewhat adversarially to the user base because they're they're trying to find ways to e- extract rent in a sense, maybe a better rent extraction proposition than TradFi has, uh, but still a rent extraction proposition. And that may mean that um, the the potential solutions that 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 don't have that element are, are underweighted or underrepresented, both um, you know, in the sort of project funding area in terms of what gets funded uh, and in terms of what gets represented in the political dialogue. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess for me, it's like, okay, I'm in this space for very specific reasons because I want to increase my liberty. I want to increase my self-sovereignty. I want to um, stay private with my finances. I want the government's hand out of my wallet as much as possible, right? Okay, then you look at... um like blockchain association, right? They're like a leading um, trade association for the, the quote blockchain industry. Um, and they're, they're heavily funded by, by VCs and by their member companies. And, and they're, they're sending people to DC to work with lawmakers. Right. So like their members are, are like, you know, they're all companies, right? They're all companies That's that right. are, yes. that are, Primarily, I would say, funded by like Silicon Valley, by A16Z and Paradigm, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they don't give a crap about my liberty. They, they don't care about my self-sovereignty or um, my privacy. They only care about that stuff as far as um, like what's the point? How far can they compromise on those things and still keep me and others as believers, right? But they don't... They're not there to maximize my privacy, obviously. Um, so there is no real voice of uh, the individual in this stuff. There's nobody right. in D.C. that's representing Th- the that. I certainly that I agree with. Yeah, yeah, I certainly agree that the there 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 should be a voice for users. Um, and I think this applies not just to the political process, but to example, you know, to to chain governance as well, right? And and protocol governance, that that user voice uh, just is is not coordinated like the other voices are, and basically the only vehicle for it is crypto Twitter, right? Just people griping on crypto Twitter. Um, I do think that has probably more of an impact than than you might sometimes think, or or you know, in in the most pessimistic moments, because you know I, I've definitely talked to like congressional staffers and 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 other people who 
are active on this stuff in the hill and and they they actually emphasize that the you know the the lawmakers and their staff are, are watching crypto twitter for reactions sometimes that might mean that if crypto twitter is reacting very positively to something then if it's elizabeth warren's office they're going to use that they're going to wave that around as evidence that it's too good for crypto whatever is whatever is being proposed right and and on the other hand uh you know if the reaction is negative um then the you know people who are more crypt pro crypto like maybe McHenry's office will 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 use that reaction as evidence that you know if the proposal is adopted everyone will just leave the US and the, and the problem won't be solved so yeah. it, it does come in the the mob so to speak does come in through that route but it would be far better if it were more organized and and they had you know users had representatives directly talking to staffers and that sort of thing yeah but how does that even happen in a space like this like where first of all we're so we're all such nerds and antisocial freaks that we can barely even pull anything <laughs> together half the time. But like, you know, is there a parallel for this situation? Like in, in, in another industry? Like, I don't even, I think about that a lot. I'm like, is, has there been like when the internet was coming together, was there a similar thing? But I don't think there was because people weren't even able to organize really. They didn't have the internet to do that with because it was just being born. So the, the similar thing, the similar thing uh, in, in that context was the cypherpunks, right? It was guys like like Nick Zabo, um, you know, and all, all these guys who, you know, but but at the time they had no money, right? It, you know, they they just represented kind of like the pure interests of software, and and now it's it's a very strange dynamic where, you know, people who are may enter this space for kind of idealistic reasons very quickly get very rich and, and they kind of all turn into VCs, right? Uh, uh, and, and so the lines blur very rapidly, unfortunately. Yeah. the It just seems like the system's not set up for um, for this kind of input. You know, it's like, That's okay, right. we can come together, like we can go testify in front of Congress, we can form organizations, try to raise money, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day... Congress is bought and paid for, unfortunately, and uh, that money is coming from the companies, the corporations. And that's right. This is a byproduct of living it under, you know, this sort of pseudo capitalist system that we're under, you know, and I was just like, there's representative, um, I forget what state he's from, but Tom Emmer, who um, in the US Congress, and he's pretty based thinker. He seems to get it. He seems to, to understand the challenges um, that the space is facing. And he's now written a new bill um, that basically gives um, blockchain apps, they call it, I believe, a safe harbor uh, as long as they're non-custodial. Right. It's like that's basically what the bill said. It's like as if they're right. non-custodial, they don't have to be treated as money transmitters. Right. Um, but I'm looking at that and obviously I right away I'm asking questions like, OK, well, if there's a multi-sig, is it custodial or yeah, like, what, what does custodial mean? Exactly. Right. right. So <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at that. And so I'm thinking to myself, all right, how did this bill get written? What happened here? He obviously wrote it, proposed it. Um, along with whoever co-sponsored it, whatever. But he had meetings. He had meetings not with users in this space necessarily, but with 
these trade associations and with these crypto lobbyists and with these people who who I've been saying for years and you know too they thrive on obfuscating the reality of what's going on you know so like is somebody like him already compromised like is he really looking out for my liberty my freedom or is he just working with these these paid off lawyers to put together corporate friendly uh legislation that's ultimately going to you know potentially hurt my freedom yeah and the honest answer is i don't know right uh, and i think it's very hard to determine these things I, I would i would like to think that it may be you know at, at best mixed motives right like he kind of gotten red pilled on crypto and legitimately likes it you know and and, and thinks that it's uh freedom preserving tech and and that that's good for the country and that's that's certainly part of why he's pushing for this but then obviously you know he he must also have industry donors and yeah I, in that particular case i just don't know you know if someone pushed for that and yeah and if, if he understands the the, the sort of downsides of that, right? Because there, there's a certain narrative around this tech around like, oh, uh, you know, it's trustless, it's immutable, et cetera. And if you haven't gone deep into the architecture of the different protocols and, and how the market works and how the ecosystem works, uh, you're not on crypto Twitter every day, uh, you're not shift, like sifting through technical documentation, et cetera, then you, you might not realize all the holes that exist in that narrative, right? Um, and so he, he may just not know those holes. He may just know the narrative, right? Um, and, and I think that probably is the case for a lot of these politicians. You know, from what I've seen, um, obviously, we kind of have the, the opposite problem with regulators, right, where uh, they they at this point, you know, they, they heard the narrative, they kept investigating closely, they saw a lot of holes in the narrative, and now they've kind of veered to the opposite ex of the extreme, which is just disregarding the narrative completely, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, um, you know, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it, our, our political situation is not ideal, that's for sure. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I didn't even think about it that way. That like, you got Congress, who's kind of these these lawmakers over here are trying to um, respect things that are almost mythical at this point and don't really exist beyond Bitcoin, as far as like the trust minimization and stuff like that. Like, by the way, that that bill, if anybody wants to look it up, is Blockchain Regulatory Certainty Act. Um, that's from Tom Emmer of Minnesota. Uh, then you got the regulators who are unelected, appointed, um, work at the pleasure of, of the president for the most part, um, who are, they just look at it like it's black and white, like it's there's nothing beyond what's on paper and how current law may apply to it, right? Or not even law. Well, I guess it is law, but I mean the regulations that they basically arbitrarily uh, develop. So... You know, it's interesting because they don't care about getting elected. They don't care about getting reelected, right? Because right. <laughs> they're not elected in the first place. On the yep. other hand, the people that care about being reelected and actually work allegedly for the people are out there. Um, you know, so maybe that is a sign that they are having more conversations with regular people. Like regulators are not talking to regular people ever for any reason unless they're suing them, right? And, and so... Um, it's an, it's an, it is an interesting way to look at it and the difference between Congress and regulators like the SEC. Um, you mentioned CBDC. Like, 
where do you do you think that this is an inevitable outcome like this full surveillance tyrannical cbdc or do you think that there's still hope that it can be like privacy preserving or anything like that uh, I think there's hope because uh, a lot of powerful politicians are against it, at least in the U.S., right? Um, and I think, you know, for good reason, right? Because they realize, hey, we're in power right now, uh, but we, we might not be in power next term. And what are our opponents going to do with this? And is it going to, you know, enable them to kind of entrench themselves in power forever, right? Um, you know, if they can, uh, if the government can decide what you're allowed and not allowed to donate your money to, right, and they can enforce that programmatically, that's a pretty bad thing, right, um, for, for whoever is not currently in power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think there is a lot of pushback on that. I, I personally think, I mean, I also think crypto is, is maybe like a little bit too close-minded to CBDCs in a certain sense, um, because if there could be like, a, like an actually decentralized autonomous CBDC, Right. And I realize that that's not what anyone is currently proposing. They're proposing very centralized things like eCoin, right, where the government has a back door and they can freeze people's money and reverse transactions and all that stuff. But but if you if you kind of like just forgot about all that for a second and thought about the idea of an actually decentralized, autonomous, trust minimized government CBDC. Right. I mean, in a certain sense, that, that would be way more efficient than than like Circle. Right. Um, because th- there's not someone like extracting rent from it um the 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 coin is directly the dollar right so you don't have the counterparty risk and you don't you know need these like expensive auditors and disclosures um you know and, and proofs of solvency and all these things to get at what's what's backing it because like literally the the token would be fiat right um and so you know, in a certain sense, I think that would be like the optimal outcome. Um, but it's just like like no one is currently proposing that, and so the CBDCs have become equated to like evil ecoin uh, type of things, which is accurate to what's being proposed. And so there's the proponents of it on the one hand, and the opponents of it on the other. Um, and yeah, I would put myself into the opponent category uh, in that sense. So what you're talking about, I mean, it sounds impossible to achieve with today's the way the governments operate right right but you're you're talking about basically cash um you know but but blockchain cash right yes. but the government could obviously control supply somehow right. Yeah, um, it would still have the same rules about, you know, sort of, you know, the ability to mint new money, you know, whatever the whatever economics are currently used. Uh, but the, you know, someone holding that cash, right, the cash would be recognized as legal tender, um, you know, and th- there would be no ability for the government to just freeze it, take it away, you know, reverse transactions in it, etc. To me, that would be the most efficient, you know, optimal outcome, right? But we're very far from that. Yeah, I mean, to me, the real problem is that even if we develop this system and we convince government to do this, that the the ability is still there to change it, right? And the ability is still there for for a new government to come in and say, you know what, uh, let's add some censorship in here. Let's find ways to screw with this. And yeah, this is true. And they could always change. They could also always, uh, you know, they could pass a new law that doesn't recognize it as legal tender or only recognizes like the new centralized fork of it as legal tender. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's always things that can happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's goes back to the whole 
adversarial thinking way of looking at something like that, where once that that technology is out of the box, it's been developed for years, like it is being right now in DeFi, and it's out of the box, uh, you can't put it back in the box, right. and somebody's going to come along and use it. You know, you can equate it to like a nuclear weapon, you know, it's like... Yep. It's always there. You can't get rid of it. And so you, you know, the reason the world is still existing right now is because the people in charge of the nukes have decided it should continue to exist. Like, it's not like they can't blow the world up right now. It's like they're just right. choosing not to. And, you know, their finger could be on the button and you could do nothing about it. So it's the same thing with this kind of stuff where if the tech is there and they understand how to use it, they're going to use it. Just look at the, what's happened with the Internet. Like like 30 years ago, the, the, um, the U.S. government knew nothing about the Internet. You know, they had no idea how they could utilize it to censor or to or that they would even need to, you know. And then as time goes on, they figure things out. They get smarter people that um you know, now there's people that grew up with the internet that are Congress people, right? And like yep. they fully were immersed and they understand it. And there's absolutely no reason to think the same thing won't happen with with this tech. You know, even if they do launch a privacy preserving yep. CBDC, how long is that going to last? Ten years, and then it's going right. to be used. Or yeah, I'll tell you how long it'll last. It'll last until the next terrorist attack, or until the right. next, uh, you know, lockdown, or w whatever the emergency is. And then they grab more power, and then they abuse it. So That's true. And, there, and there's always the risk of a bait and switch as well, right? They could initially pre present some privacy preserving, uh, you know, uh, trust minimized thing. Um, and then like once it's widespread, you know, uh, upgraded to not have those features anymore. Yeah, I get the risks. Yeah. So that's what I try to tell people in DeFi. It's like they're building these these weapons. That's how I look at it. I, I think right. that. I think that the stuff that's being built right now is exactly this. It is these weapons that are going to be used to to suppress freedom eventually. You know, and and um it's not unique to tech innovation, right? It's like every form of technology has been used for good and for bad, but not every form of technology has been capable of um of micromanaging our lives into oblivion the way that this technology um, is capable of doing. So like I, I throw those ideas out there all the time. People, people object and they say I'm going too far, but um, like, do you see what I'm saying as far as, the future oh, yeah, absolutely. what the future may hold yeah absolutely i mean I, I think we both like tweeted about this a lot and yeah i mean i pretty much agree right it's uh uh you know when you when you especially once you start combining this with like digital id right and it's all on chain it, it's going to get like very very tricky very fast and a lot of the you know i i've seen a lot of ideas for kind of like increasing the relationship of crypto to the social layer, you know, that, that honestly looks something like, um, you know, like, like Chinese social scoring. Right. right. Um, you know, and, and I think that the, once you have these kind of on-chain identities and, and once they become, uh, you know, some combination of commercially and politically important, uh, you know, then, then people can really start doing a lot with that. Right. And a lot of it will be, some of it could be good. Uh, some of it could be very, very bad. Yeah. Yeah, this this whole like Worldcoin thing has yep. made me realize more than ever that um, 
because because they're pushing it as privacy preserving, right? They say, okay, you don't have to give your name, you don't have to give your social security number. You just get your iris scanned, and then that generates a unique code. We're not even saving your iris scan, right? We're just saving the unique code uh, that is is basically generated from your iris scan. So um, it's completely private because all you're left with is this code that then you can use to prove that you're a person. You can go around and scan it and do whatever ultimately is going to be done with it. But the way that I'm looking at this now is what they're working on and what a lot of these decentralized identity folks are working on is they want to replace the old school way of identification. And the old school identification is basically these random words, which are like your name, right? Which are yep. just totally random arbitrary letters and, and these random numbers that are, you know, your national ID, your social security number, whatever, like they're separate from your body. They can be spoofed and faked and it's not reliable. They want to replace that form of ID with these biometrics and these scientific markers that are built into your body that are impossible to a certain extent to replace or to get rid of like your fingerprints right. or your iris scan or you know who knows what else they're going to come up with and that's the new identity so that's the identity that is going to be associated with your bank account that's the identity that's going to be associated with your your medical history and, and your driving record and all these different things they won't need your name anymore they won't need your social security number anymore because they have the the core essence of who you are so when you present yourself at the doctor's office and get your jab they scan your iris they don't even need to know your name because then when you go to the grocery score store they scan your iris again and they know if you were jabbed they don't care that you're gabriel they don't right. care where you live or what state you're from or where you know all they care about is does this iris scan have a jab associated and if right. it doesn't we're not going to let you in Right. And to me, it's like becoming so obvious. So when they say it's privacy preserving, it's almost a lie. It's almost like a scam oh, just sure. to get people to, to, to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, now tell I mean, me, am I off the rails or what? No, no, of course. I mean, it's only privacy preserving if like somehow the, the different people, uh, the different databases that correlate other information to these iris hashes uh, uh, don't, don't ever connect with each other and of course we know that that's not going to be the case right data sharing is is massively abundant it's a huge industry right and and this will this will just become part of that obviously right and so mm -hmm. yeah if they know your iris hash yes they, they will also be able to know your name of course they'll be able to know everything about you right it, it, it's it's just uh um you know and of course it, it's also not true that that this information can't be spoofed right because uh mm -hmm. let's just say you you need your you need to do your iris scan to confirm uh your identity uh before using some particular web sites right you log into your bank right and every time they they make you do an iris scan through some pre-approved equipment that you keep in your house uh and and you know you, you send that hash and they confirm that the hash matches etc well i mean everything can be hacked right so, so someone's going to hack that device and be able to spoof the data right um you know just just feed it you know just do a man in the middle attack and if you already know what the hash is supposed to be right you could just feed it that hash without having the corresponding iris etc so it's you know, it's it's more and more data gathering.
on pretexts that that don't really make sense uh, uh, in terms of the narratives presented, but but that do make sense for the people who are who are gathering this data because you know they will amass more more power and money from it. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. I I just think that even without the name, even without any other identifying information, we're being reduced to, um, we're being reduced to just. I want to say numbers, but it's beyond that, right? Because it's it's just the, like a, a meat bag. Matter. Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> or or we reduced to just like pure <laughs> configurations of organic matter. Yes. Right. Right. And there's no there's no laws. There's no uh, protections. Yep. Um And you know, like I'm, I consider myself a libertarian. Like I'm not out there looking for laws. Um. But the more that this happens, the more I see these these lines of people waiting to get their iris scan in exchange for like thirty five dollars or whatever it it's is. It's crazy, yeah. And you start to realize like most people just are never going to get it, you know. And so it's almost like, what <laughs> what's left, you know? I mean, during COVID, yeah. it was clear like tyranny. The majority was real. It was almost inescapable. Um, yep. I had to move to get out of a state that that basically um, people wanted to lock you out of a hospital if you didn't get jabbed. So like, yep. you know, God forbid you have a heart attack and you go to the ER and, and they won't let you in unless you, you, um, are, you know, coerced into this, uh, treatment. That's right. So, um, yeah, if you, if you real. have not, uh, if you have not worshiped the orb for your mandatory <laughs> 30 seconds, uh, you, uh -huh. you were not allowed medical treatment. I mean, this is just the way it has well, to right. be. Right. That's the thing. Wait till the government <laughs> buys into this idea. That's right. I mean, it's, that's all it takes. Um, but anyway, what what do you think the the long term, you know, for DeFi? Like, what do you think the the actual vision is? Where do you think it goes if not to this sort of CBDC driven economy? Like, where else can it possibly head? Well, I I think I mean th there have always been those who have said that this is this is going to be like like a dual or maybe like like triple market right there's going to be like there's going to be a sort of tradfi version there's going to be cdfi right where where some of these mechanisms uh, are used but fully kyc'd fully you know regulated compliant blah 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 right and then there's going to be um sort of like a pure black market uh where you know there, there's no kyc there's no compliance um you know the the people who are involved are sort of like quasi criminals but they're they're good at hiding for the most part um and then then there's going to be something in the middle right because the the, the ability to keep these two markets completely apart uh, of course that never works there's always some leakage right and so that that forms the gray um and i that that could be the case although personally be, because i think that the the whole this tech is actually very inefficient um from every kind of common sense perspective the the only thing that that it's really the only reason why it's good is if you kind of want the trust minimization and don't want to go through intermediaries, institutions, um, don't want to face censorship by the government, etc. I, I, I just have never been very confident that that 
TradFi version of it will, will really emerge or be useful. Um, but, it, but it's a question. Many people think that it will. Right. Um, uh, uh, and, and so, you, you know, but 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 it, I think you, you, you kind of either think it's going to be black market, gray market forever, you know, or you believe in kind of this tripartite structure. I also think that, um, you know, it, it's a cat and mouse game, the whole the whole way the regulatory landscape is evolving and, and also how we think about the technology is evolving. Right. Like we just had this curve hack. Right. And, you know, personally, I, I think you're this way as well. You know, I. I've kind of like largely been an immutability maxi in the space, right? And um, like when people say, like I've often heard people say, or like one of the value propositions of EOS, for example, if you remember that was that there would be these these arbitrators and that the transactions would be reversible. Uh, this is also something that was like advertised by Polkadot a lot because they, they had sort of suffered a large hack early on and lost a lot of money, you know? And so they, they saw the value of reversibility um, I think like full reversibility, you know, is is going too far in the wrong direction. But then also you look at something like the curve hack where this is a battle tested protocol. It has some of the absolutely stellar devs involved, right? Using best practices, heavily audited, um, lasted a long time without an attack, right? And then all of a sudden this like extremely subtle compiler vulnerability is exposed and exploited. And, and you realize it, it's just very hard to... Yeah, maybe maybe the trade-offs are not worth it, right? Like maybe the costs of immutability like really do outweigh the benefits. And so, you know, from that point of view, I think we may evolve into much more complex and nuanced uh, structures where th there are some social controls over these protocols, but those social controls are, are themselves like sort of unusual in that it's not like a banking style arrangement where a bank just decides things and has omnipotence, but rather it's it's these smaller, more nimble organizations like an emergency multisig, you know, and maybe you wrap that in some sort of entity. And and they they have certain things they can do with the system, but it it it's it's fairly constrained, right? Like they can they can freeze a pool and put it into withdrawal only mode, but they can't they can't upgrade the pool to new code and they can't themselves withdraw the money etc right um uh, or or they can stop it for some period of time but then you know the full dao has an override or like automatically after some period of time it you know the it, the pool becomes unfrozen uh, i'm very interested in this design space um and i think it, it's it's underexplored and could kind of like simultaneously address a lot of the regulatory and legal issues while also addressing some of the the failures of the tech and the and the failures of the governance that have occurred. So I haven't completely given up hope yet. I think there there kind of could be like a new wave of designs that's a little bit less like immutable immutability purist um, while also retaining a lot of the trust minimization. But uh, we have to see where it goes, I guess. Yeah, I think the real trick is really going to be how do you do that stuff and and get it to a place where it can't be compromised when it inevitably comes out under the scrutiny of a regulator yes. or a government, right? Yes. And that's agreed. my biggest concern with a lot of these with a lot of these DeFi apps and protocols that that uh, even the ones that are run by DAOs, you know, in that um as soon as they face any pressure, they have the ability to make changes. Um, that will sort of re reverse a lot of that, you know, and like That's the right. worst, the worst case of this is, um, is Chainlink for me because Chainlink 
is completely uh, the at least the the Oracle system that they're using right now to run DeFi is completely compromisable by this multi-sig. It's a four of nine multi-sig um, with unknown signers, and we don't have any idea if they've ever been contacted by law enforcement or government or regulator or compromised right. in any way. Uh, we have no idea what their intentions are, what they're willing to do. We have no idea even really if DeFi matters to Chainlink. Like Chainlink, in my opinion, is using DeFi as like sort of a testing ground, as right. a, an incubator for what they really want to do, which is far beyond just DeFi. You know, they want to be um, a source of truth for, for all markets. Right. Um, which, you know, as as a business, it, it's interesting. It's It's, you know... It's it's poised to be very important in this space uh, and beyond over the next few decades if they succeed. Uh, but when you just look at DeFi and you look at the control they have over it, how is that even like? Why do I like when I bring this up? Why is everybody so? It's almost like the one thing that nobody wants to really look at because I, they know, I know it's, why. Well, I know why. why. I know why it is, and I think it's 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 a it's a deep problem with the space that I've really kind of been focused on in the last six months in in you know sort of like my spare time research development, which is that there's a tendency in the space where like the the code is good, the code is trustless, right? And then anything that can't be put into the code, fuck it. Right. Like it's just because like it's not the expertise of the people. Right. Like so they, they could set up this whole DAO and they like invent these interesting governance structures, but they don't know like traditional, just purely legally, socially defined governance structures. And so they don't even try and they don't even care. They don't even realize that trust minimization is possible on that layer, right? Or trust reduction is possible on that layer. And so they just don't do it at all. So like for the Chainlink Multisig, for example, again, no, I, I w personally, I'm not, I don't like omnipotent multisigs under any circumstances, but let's just say, you know, for the sake of argument, I, I could think of ways to make it better. Right. Uh, even even while it's omnipotent, like, for example, you know, if, if that multisig was wrapped in a special purpose, like judgment remote entity in a specific direction, that entity had specific rules about how it's going to respond to subpoenas, um, when, when the sig can use its powers, uh, can it, you know, like like specific defined terms, like what is a security emergency and what rules do you need to follow before making a change based on a security emergency, et cetera. And, and all that, all the, that information was published and the, uh, um, you know, the, the, there, there was some sort of, uh, third party verification that at least the, the different multi-sig holders are actually different people and that the keys were generated in a secure way, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, it, we can imagine these things and although the, the thing would still have power and that would still be problematic, it would be less problematic, right? The, the effects would be more predictable. There would be a way to hold the people accountable uh, potentially for, for doing something wrong, for breaking the rules, like the, um, like the DeFi protocols or the users of the DeFi protocols could be made like third-party beneficiaries of some specific subset of the rules in the entity's bylaws, right? And, and things like that. And that's what I call a Borg. Right, a, a cybernetically enhanced organization, and I, I think that there is, 
you know, I, yes, I prefer a situation where we just don't need to worry about social slash legal rules, but it seems we're very far from that. And so if people are going to have some of these powers and rely on these social arrangements, let, let's at least make them good the best we can, right? Which does utilize legal tech uh, rather than, you know, purely smart contract tech. Yeah, I guess the thing with them specifically with Chainlink is that they have, they don't have an incentive to do that. You know, they don't... Um, I guess when you compare it to something in DeFi like um, like Compound or something like that, you know, where, you know, Silicon Valley, um, they're trying to create this new product space where, you know, it's this sort of um, trust-minimized lending, whatever, you know. And so they had an incentive once their admin key was exposed, they had an incentive to decentralize it. And to move to DAO governance, token governance, because they wanted to outrun the regulators. Like that, that's the whole reason that admin keys were getting burned and that um, these projects were moving to token governance and airdropping tokens and stuff like that. You know, so they had that incentive because they wanted to create this new product. On the other hand, you got Chainlink, who, um, and nobody cares that they have a multi-sig. They're running DeFi anyway. DeFi would collapse without them. There are zero developers that are complaining about it. There's zero users other than me that are complaining about, okay, there's a few, but you know, and, and so, and, and plus on top of that, Chainlink uh, wants to be regulated. They, they are aligned with like the vision of the world economic forum and this whole like singularity of government around the world. They, they are aligned with that. Like, so they, they don't have an incentive to give up that control. They only have incentive to grow that control. You know, so I, I don't have any hope that they would ever adopt any of those really, really smart and prudent things um, that you're suggesting. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I I do agree the incentive is not super strong right now, but I also think that, that that's not going to last forever, right? Um, like, think about something, and, and a lot of it may be legal pressure. Uh, like, think about something like... Um, the EU recently passed this like very comprehensive law about data sharing arrangements. And it, it even got some attention uh, in the crypto world, albeit I think it was a little bit um, misleading attention because it, it mentioned smart contracts and said that they had to be reversible. Um, but but this is a law about, about the handling of data um, the sharing of data, et cetera, right? And and that is that is what Chainlink does, right? Um, so so there there may eventually be some regulatory pressure on that. I, I agree that it's it's more indirect currently than kind of like these financial regulatory concerns that the people involved with like a protocol like Compound, uh, you know, might might be faced with, right? And it might be faced much more imminently with. But I, but I think there'll be some incentives, and. If I think there are also other incentives, right? Like if something is wrong with the Oracle, I think at some point there, there will be a class action against Chainlink, right? For on the theory of, of providing bad, bad technology or bad information, making the wrong choices about how to weight the different information, right? And that that, that caused someone financial injury. And so at a minimum, the people on the multi-sig would at least want limited liability, you know, which would mean they want to wrap it in, in some sort of entity, whether they go the further step of making that entity kind of like transparent and accountable. Yeah, you're right there. There may be less of an incentive to do that. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Yeah. Yeah. 
What do you think about um, what was going on with um, Richard Hart and Hex and all that? Um, yeah, so I have somewhat of a like my take on this might be contrarian both to the SEC and to the crypto community, um, uh, because I think a lot I think a lot of people, at least out of the gate, were sort of like, oh, this lawsuit is way overdue, you know, and 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 we're kind of taking the SEC side, which I can understand because the project is I, I would describe it as um, a non fraudulent crypto economic Ponzi game, uh, at least the original version of Hex, uh, putting aside the Pulse Chain stuff, I would describe that way, right? Because it was, you know, it's essentially, it's, it's an immutable smart contract on Ethereum. Uh, it, it was kind of marketed as like a, a blockchain certificate of deposit, but really all it is, it, it's just a token uh, that you can stake to get more of that same token, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's just sort of like, there's there's no there there, right? There's really, it, it's just a silly kind of Ponzi game um, where maybe if you're like really smart about thinking about how, how all the different players are incentivized in this, you know, you, you can play it the right way and, and, and make a lot of money, um, but you could also easily lose money if you make the wrong calculation. And it even had these weird embedded rules around, um, like the, like there was a certain whale penalty. It's been a long time since I looked at this, uh, but but there were just these kind of like crazy rules embedded in the smart contract. And, and it's just like a game where it's very transparent. All the, all the rules are, are literally on chain in the form of this code. And, and there's really nothing else to it and a lot of people got their hex for free right because there was this ability to um if you had bitcoin uh, uh at a certain snapshot uh point then you would be credited with hex on ethereum or, or you could claim it right um and so you know to me uh i i just i just don't really consider that uh a security right um he didn't promise that he did sell some, so that 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 is like the potential opening for the SEC is that he did sell a bunch of hacks for ETH, uh, but there was no um, at the time. I think he was pretty disciplined in the sense that he he wasn't saying he was going to take those that ETH and build something further for Hex, right? It was already complete. Um, uh, and so I, I think from a securities law point of view, the SEC's case, at least on, on Hex itself, is not exactly a slam dunk. There is this, I, I've had discussions with the SEC staff long ago at this point, because I, I kind of gave up at a, at a certain juncture, uh, where, you know, I, I asked them about the, the sort of like fully immutable contracts that that give sort of economics to tokens right but but they're complete on day one not only are there no no promises of future building uh but but actually like like no future building occurs right mm -hmm. um you know I, i've posited that scenario to sec staff and the only thing they were able to come up with uh, on sort of the side of that being a security was this set of cases concerning what are called viaticals, which are fractional interests in life insurance policies. And there is a circuit split about uh, whether and when these are securities with the, I believe it's the, you know, I'm not even going to say what circuit it is. Uh, what One of the circuits uh, developed a view that the, 
the via that the pre-purchase entrepreneurial efforts of the people who sort of designed the economics of the viaticals contract were enough to um, make it a security under the Howey test, even though there was no promise of future efforts, right? Mm -hmm. And then another circuit found the opposite view that under Howey, someone must be investing with an expectation of future efforts. Uh, and and the only the only thing that that the SEC staff was able to come up with for these sort of immutable contracts that are already done at the point that a sale is made uh, and and no future efforts are made is is the idea of leaning on this these viaticals cases that that count pre-purchase entrepreneurial efforts. So it, it's somewhat it's somewhat doubtful. The law is somewhat doubtful on this point. Um, you know, and it's a bit of a stretch, I guess. Uh, uh, and and that would that would really be their only argument, um, I think, under the Howey test. Now it is a little bit complicated in this case because after the Hex thing, he started doing this pulse chain stuff, right? Where suddenly he did promise to build something, right? Uh, he promised to build a new chain, a fork of Ethereum, and it would be better in all these various ways. Um, so uh, it, it, it's possible that that once he started making those promises, that 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 could turn Hex. That that could create an investment contract scheme related to Hex. Um, it's also possible that the because there was um, what he called the sacrifice uh, uh, to for people to get token on that chain, um, which which was basically donating other tokens to to like a life I believe it's a life extension nonprofit uh, that Richard Hart likes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the SEC is trying to say that that, that was an investment of capital, uh, but I, I think that's doubtful as well, right? Because there was no, it's not like this was going to like a labs company for Pulse Chain where they were going to use use these these fundraises to to build the chain or something or improve it. Instead, it was going to this life extension research charity. So I, I, I don't think that's a Howie transaction either. So I, I, you know, Richard Hart may have done some very bad things in connection with Hex. There are accusations of wash trading, which may be fraudulent uh, some type of wire fraud or some type of other uh, uh, you know market manipulation or something um, e- even if the securities laws don't cover this but I, I'm kind of doubtful on the securities laws covering this and I actually think his defense is is on the fact on the pure facts is stronger than ripples was um, so you know it'll be interesting to see how it plays out but I, I don't think it's a slam dunk for the SEC yeah, no, that's a great explanation and overview. And I tend to agree with a lot of it. Um, I think for the most part that this was, it, it's more akin to a cult than an investment scheme, in my opinion. And I think that um, the fact that you were right, like it, it was, it's an immutable smart contract, at least hacks, like the whole pulse chain thing. I don't know. Different story. Actually, that that might be where he really screwed up because Hex was immutable and he was able to go around and, and sort of trash projects that were using um, multi-sigs for governance and required trust in developers and stuff like that. But then Pulse Chain came along and uh, next thing you know, that was completely um, controlled by a admin key, an EOA admin key that he held. I believe he admitted to that. Um, there was another EOA um, Ethereum address that custodied billions of dollars um, for the bridge, 
And I believe he had control of that too, you know? So once that new, that new, uh, layer two was launched, he sort of just threw away all of the, the, um, stuff that he was saying before and just went full on like scam, you know, as far as like whether or not, you know, and then when you confronted hex users with this information, all, the only thing you would ever get is, oh, we trust him. We trust him. We trust him. I don't right. think there was like any hex users that that got into this whole um, thing without understanding that they had to trust him with their money. Like, I, I think that um, ultimately, yeah, they understood that it, that hex was not upgradable and stuff, but they also understood that the market ceased to exist the day, the minute that Richard Hart decides it should cease to exist because they knew he held a lot of it, if not most of it. Um, They knew that he was uh, controlling the markets. They knew that he had ways to manipulate prices and they counted on him for that. And then they had this whole marketing machine where they would try to bring in new people, you know? So to a certain extent, there was a little bit of a pyramid thing going on, but more than anything, it was a cult. Right. In my opinion. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and some of the, you know, th- this stuff gets very, very subtle, right? Because you clearly, he had many statements, predictions that, that the token would go up in value, right? But in theory, for securities law purposes, the, the reason why it's going up in value, right, ha- has to be associated with with his with the reasonable expectation of his efforts right which means i think which i believe means although this this could be another subtle point uh, affirmative efforts right not merely negative efforts so yes he could destroy it by selling all his hex right he could tank it but is that enough is that the kind of trust that that's targeted by the securities laws i'm not so sure i think the kind of trust that's targeted by securities laws is where you really promise to do something right directly mm-hmm. or indirectly right oh i'm going to um i'm going to build a lot of like if he had said uh yeah i'm going to um like be reaching out to all sorts of commercial partners and getting them to uh like engage in deals uh with my company uh that that will use hex as as part of products right that that's basically what ripple did right and and that i think that i get as being covered by the securities laws but this uh, i i don't know i don't know it it was just kind of a, a a machine you know where you could play this kind of weird game and a lot i think a lot of the marketing was probably decentralized as well right as you say just just people who are fanboys of richard hart and the project and hoping to get rich from it and then they start to contribute their own efforts right to get others in right and there's some very very interesting case law there's even an entire there's even one or entire uh, uh law firm boutiques that specialize in structuring um uh like uh, uh like pyramidal marketing schemes so that they're not security schemes so so there's a lot of there's a lot of law around this and it, it it's not it's not as clearly stacked in the sec's favor as you might think but it'll certainly be an interesting case yeah and the thing with him is he's so um how do you put it i mean he's very well spoken on the issue he seems to know exactly um like he 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 knew where this was going you know he's been Absolutely. saying this for a long time he Absolutely. just had a documentary made about him exactly um the, he 
uh, he goes to Louis Vuitton and, and Versace in these stores, has a f- camera crew following him, says in there he's spending his hex money. Right. You know, th- comes that's out another, with 20 that's another weird thing. That's another weird thing about the SEC's case, because they, 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 this was not just a Section 5 registration violation case. They're alleging fraud. And one of the frauds they allege is that he people didn't know that that he was spending that 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 he was using money he made from hex for all these lavish purchases and instead that they somehow thought he was using the money to build more stuff for hex and i just don't think that that's factually accurate i think and i think he'll have a lot of evidence he can bring he can look on twitter for christ's sake exactly (laughs) and he can can look on they can look on twitter on all the responses when he posted shopping at louis vuitton and everyone literally talking about him using the hex money for that so I, i I just don't know who drafts these complaints sometimes. This is the worst. This is by far the, the worst, sloppiest crypto complaint I, I, and, and most inaccurate that I've seen from the SEC so far. Yeah, it gets to a point where you, you ask, like, who are they trying to protect here? Are there really hex uh, buyers or, you know, investors, whatever you want to call them, that um, that were hurt, that didn't have the information here? Because the one thing that he did... Uh, right was he was completely transparent about what was going on he was getting rich off the back of these people you know and like he told them that over and over and over i'm not saying that's right i'm saying what's the role of government when people are so stupid that they sit there and they continue to funnel money to him so that he can keep on doing that. It's almost right. like, you know, when you're, you're, you got these, these girls on uh, Instagram or uh, TikTok, you know, and guys keep sending them money and they're just out there buying Mercedes and, and, you know, they're buying expensive stuff. And then these guys just keep sending the money. Like, right. is it, it's kind of like the same thing, isn't it? In yeah, a way. Yeah. And, and look, it may be a scam. It may be fraud, but, but I don't think it's securities fraud. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. I agree with you there. And but I still, I'm not. Yeah. Is it fraud if he's just being honest? I don't know. Well, I think the the one credible fraud allegation I see here, and and I'd heard this long before the SEC sued. I, I know someone uh, who uh, he, he he's known as he's known as the deer in uh, crypto circles, and he had done quite a bit of research into uh, Richard Hart's wallets around the time of the original Hex launch. And I think like there's a reasonable case you can make as to like funds recycling, kind of like an EOS as well. uh, Although the SEC didn't bring a fraud claim there where they, they, they recycled funds to um, make it look like there was a lot more interest and and money behind this than, than there actually was. And, and so if that, if that is true, that, that may well be fraud, right? He may have been doing fraud by virtue of on-chain transactions and knowing that people would take those on-chain transactions as a certain signal of, of public interest in the project and, and that they would rely on that. And that could be like a wire fraud claim or some sort of commodities manipulation claim. I don't think it's a securities law claim for what it's worth. Yeah, it'd be so interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, a part of me just thinks there's somebody at the SEC that just was watching him make this movie, watching him make videos, calling out the SEC. Like, he's doing all this stuff over the, you know, he does like a live stream every day or whatever he does, you know, where it's just like he's calling out the government. I mean, the end, he always wanted this type of attention at the end of the day. But he, he's he's a little psychotic, I think. I think he's he's 
He's crazy in a way. He knew exactly how this was coming. To me, it's like, it, it appears like this is like the final scene of his movie and he knew it was about to happen. So that's why he's already got this production crew surrounding him and everything. It's like, he wanted this. And this right. is somehow, uh, you know, for him, he thinks this is somehow um, a, a wise uh, it's business It's his magnum move. opus, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, his, it's yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Before this, he was the spam king, right? Like, I don't know if, how much you've looked into his background with, like, this whole thing where he went to Panama and, and got ripped off from all his, like, spam money, supposedly. But, like, he – I think that was a very similar type of thing, and, and he got he got very savvy at kind of operating in, in, a, in a gray market, so to speak, and maximizing that. And, you know, he probably repeated much of the same playbook uh, uh, here with crypto. Man, what is this space we're in, dude? <laughs> so crazy um we're coming up on time but before i let you go i had to i wanted to get your take on this whole curve situation and yes. with uh, igorov the the founder um highly respected developer in the space right um but it's like i mean so curve gets hacked for what it's worth uh, certain pools get hacked um and next thing you know, he's, <laughs> I mean, he obviously had millions and millions, if not billions of dollars worth of, of CRV token, uh, which he didn't sell, but he drops it in Ave and takes out huge loans of stable coins, I believe, which um, he uses to buy these mansions that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, which is crazy in and of itself to me. I mean, we've seen it in DeFi happen a few times. Uh, but next thing you know, there's a curve hack. He's getting liquidated all over the place. And now there's there's worry that this liquidation, you know, he'll you know, it could end up devastating a lot of the DeFi uh, markets. But how much have you been following this? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll say in advance, I have somewhat of a conflict of interest as I'm pretty friendly with the curve guys. And I'm also on the curve. Uh, they call it the emergency DAO, but it's really an emergency multi-sig. Um, so uh, I've, the answer is I've been following quite closely. Uh, there, there is a little bit of inaccuracy in what you just said, I think, in that he, he has not actually been liquidated yet. Um, and, and just to like make clear on the timing of things, it's not like he took out these positions you know, after this hack or in connection with this hack. They, they've been there a long time, and Ave governance has kind of been increasingly concerned with them for a long time. Uh, but yes, you're exactly right. He instead of selling uh, all his founder curve uh, or a bunch of it, instead he he pledged it as collateral into uh, Ave, both Ave V2, that's where the biggest position is, and Ave V3, that's that's where a much smaller position is, um, and and used that to borrow uh, stable coins and spent the stable coins on stuff, presumably, including uh, possibly a mansion, right? Um, so. Uh, uh, and you know the the issue, of course, is that uh, the the token is is you know. Like I mean, it's not it's not the most illiquid token in the world. It's not like I don't think it's at the level of like what Mango was during the Mango hack. But it, you know, it's not liquid on the scale of like Ether BTC. And so there's so much of this collateral 
in in Ave V2 at this point that you know if if the price if if his health factor does does drop sufficiently and a liquidation needs to be triggered it's not a liquidation that's actually going to be taken up right um like like no one is going to be able no one is going to be buying that amount of curve at that price and so you know Ave will incur bad debt and then he has similar positions in other uh credit protocols right and he's he's borrowing stables on those to to pay down the Ave debt, right, and keep that one from being liquidated. Um, so, so it is a bit of a messy situation. Uh, uh, but you know, I mean, it, it highlights one of the key differences between DeFi and TradFi, right? Which is that in TradFi, if you borrow money, uh, th- that is actually a a debt agreement or a loan agreement. You are making a promise to repay the money, typically, right? And you may pledge some collateral toward that, but that that collateral is you know, it's, uh, uh, it, 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 that's not the only recourse that the borrower has. The borrower can take your collateral, sell it, and if that's not sufficient to cover the debt, they can keep suing you, right? You made a promise to repay that full amount plus interest. And this is just not the case in DeFi, right? In DeFi, uh, you pledge your collateral, and that is the sole and only recourse that the protocol has to get paid the borrowed stablecoins back, right? Um, if that turns out not to be enough, if people don't want to buy that collateral or they only want to buy it at a much lower price, that's it. You know, you can't you can't go sue him. I don't think no one has tried it yet. But why not? I, I think I think it would lose because it's because it's not a debt agreement. He didn't make a promise to repay that amount, right? You can um, sue him though, and you can try. You could. They may. This may happen at some point. This this literally may happen at some point, right? Um, you know, and it'll be it'll a very interesting happen. case if it does. There's zero yeah. doubt. Yeah. If, if that yeah. if that, in my opinion, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm saying that right. they can, you know, and right. that's part of my issue with a lot of this DeFi stuff is like, yeah, whenever shit hits the fan, uh, whether it's a DAO or just a, t- a development team or whatever, you know, once they realize they're screwed, uh, then they turn to the legal system. And they try everything that they can. They hire That's lawyers right. and they do whatever yep. they can possibly can do. So if, if Ave or, or Frax or whoever it is out there is getting screwed and there's humans behind it who are worried that they're going to lose their life's work uh, or their life savings, uh, they're going to hire some lawyers and they're going to they're they gonna go for it. You they know, so yep. it, and then then what? Then you get yep. lawyers involved, you get courts involved, you get regulators involved, you get Congress yes. involved, you get who knows what. Next thing you know, the, you have a bunch of laws. Th- this is why I have take. a lot of job and career security. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yes. But it's like it's it's impossible to avoid once you get down that road. And next thing you know, you're dealing, you know, as, the way I look at government and crypto is like if there's even the tiniest crack, um, the government's like an ooze, like a, like a blob, like a. You know, what do you call it? You know, just it's like this oozing um, oil or, you know, blobby grease that just can get into any crack that it can find. Right. And in DeFi, there's not just cracks. There's like craters. There's like these huge crevices that just lets the government ooze in. Once it's in there, it never leaves. Right. It never leaves. And you look at something like Bitcoin and there's there's it's debatable. I mean, you know, some say there's zero cracks. Some say, okay, maybe there's some opportunities. But, you know, it's a much different situation. If government can get in, it's at the very surface level, you know, versus something like DeFi where government can get straight to the heart of it. And something like Aave, 
um, which is DAO driven, has a, has a development team that has more power than they advertise, uh, is completely reliant on Chainlink for its price data. You know, so Chainlink basically um, um, Ave operates because Chainlink allows it to. And so there's all these different ways for a court. And we've seen court orders over the past year, right? Right. Where, Oasis. Yep. Yeah. Where they order a DeFi project to use their multi-sig to attack a wallet or to drain yep. a balance or to do whatever they had to do and actually hack their own code, you know, yep. in order to fix things. So if there's a way to keep um, to keep that Ave position, for instance, from just completely um, causing billions of dollars to get lost, uh, they'll probably find a way to do it. And none of those people who are not losing their money are going to complain about it. And regulators would probably applaud it. And if it's driven by a court, the court would obviously be in favor of it. And the only people who would be complaining are people like you and me who are like, well, what are we doing here? There's no integrity yeah. with any of this. But to yeah. me, it's inevitable. Like it's, it's definitely and possibly, and possibly Mitch, right? <laughs> possibly yeah. he would complain, right? Because he would say, you got the rules have been changed on me, right? Uh, right. Uh, but yes. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and there was already a threat of that even before this incident, right? Because um, uh, I, I think it is Gauntlet. Uh, yeah, it was Gauntlet. They, they before all this, when the, I think when the health factor was at like 6.1, uh, they they posted a governance proposal expressing concern and, and and suggesting some some pretty surprising remedies that that I didn't even know are possible. I can't remember exactly what they are right now, um, but I, I was surprised that that like it was even possible for them to kind of like start doing a graceful liquidation now, or you know you know what I mean, or like mm-hmm. like prevent his ability to like further top it up with more collateral. Um, like that shows quite a bit of flexibility over the protocol. But anyway, uh, the um, yeah like the. The, the the rule like there's currently like more flexibility to change the rules in most of these systems than people realize and like wherever there is flexibility courts may order changes um and yeah it can become a huge mess so like this is why i actually think uh we we need we need borgs and like we may even need something like a um like our own legal system within crypto right because there are going to be these disputes uh, uh, about w- what is legitimate, what are legitimate changes, what are not legitimate changes. And if we don't kind of like internalize a dispute resolution system within crypto, then it is just going to revert to like traditional governmental systems and they're, they don't really get crypto or like it. And so most of their remedies will probably be pretty bad for crypto. And I would hate to see that. Interesting, man. Although do legal systems even work without threat of violence? That's a whole separate conversation, I guess. Sometimes some violence can be, um, I think, like slashing. Uh, like a lot of people have talked about social slashing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think that is crypto's version of violence, right? Like the DAO, <laughs> the DAO fork is crypto's version of violence. And so something can be done with that, but what's currently done with it is like pretty um illegitimate right i would describe it as like kangaroo courts uh where like there's no precedent there's no real rules you just get a bunch of people together and they just like decide what they want to do at that moment and it's almost like a might makes right thing that that's not going to be a very good long-term social solution all of this stuff makes me appreciate bitcoin so much more it has flaws it has weaknesses but i mean the the (laughs) the the programmability and the turing completeness um on ethereum has led to for to me uh something that's just 
it's not, it's a mutation of anything that anybody thought it would ultimately be. You know, I, I just think that, um, we took a wrong turn somewhere. I know for you, it's more work, which is great, man. Hey, I hope you're racking up those hours. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a fun time. I enjoy the space. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for hanging out with me, man. Yeah, man. Good times. Anytime. Talk soon.